0: Hello, and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week, what?
1: No, just double-checking the waveforms are doing everything. The waveforms are fine.
0: <laughs> this week I spoke with John Abramson, who's an actual doctor. What have you done with your life, Jen? John, hold on a minute. Haven't you got a PhD?
1: No, you've made me quit. Was I was you. teaching people and everything. You're
0: never going to get anywhere. I could foresee your future, Jen. You were, you were coming down a dark path. <laughs>
1: of what? Education? <laughs> dark path of education. I
0: could have come on under the skin. Dark path of under the skin. Um, John Abramson is a physician and author of Overdosed America. His new book, Sickening! How Big Pharma Broke America Healthcare and How American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. It's out on February the 8th. Now, he's cool, this guy. We have a lovely conversation. He's a lovely man. He's a... Absolute sweetheart, and he's been on Rogan. He's got loads of good stuff to say. He's um, very uh, pro vaccines, isn't he? And but very anti big pharma, so interesting, but not like
1: forceful pro vaccine, more like just you
0: know, right? Have a vaccine if you require one, yeah. Not I'm I'm not gonna judge you, right? That's what that seems like a nice way to go. All right, so listen to the but listen, listen, let's hear what you thought about the episode with Shoshana Zuboff, yeah. Yeah, Karen Reeves thought this here. We thought Google was our friend. It's great to see memes and fun stuff, but now they're surveilling and recording everything you do. Edward Snowden was right and should get a medal. Nice, thanks, Karen. Yes, nice. I think so. The trooper whose O's are noughts or zeros. This is brilliant. We have to, we have to take away big tech's ability to farm and use our information. There you go. You liked her. Yeah. I feel like we've talked about her already. We did.
1: Mention, that's because she was out last week, and we spent ages Why are we still talking Be- about. her? we always the I mean, on. Yeah. In, I but usually you don't, usually don't say this about previous kids. I was at Hammersmith
0: guests. last night oh. and someone nearly died, Jim. Yeah, I was yeah. out saving lives.
1: Or causing death. It's all <laughs> oh, two sides <laughs> of the same coin, Jen. Two sides of the she same coin. She saw you and nearly died. Huh? And she nearly died. Turn
0: yourself up in my ears. She, oh, that's the first that. time you've ever said it. I oh, know, it's because I've never wanted to hear it, what you're saying. Because
1: you can saying. hear the echo now. Oh, wait, hold on. Look at you with your colour yeah, box. I can't see you because the camera. Is I'm annoying. staying behind that camera. I
0: don't want eye contact. There you are. So go on, what's your point? I'm killing people at the yeah. gigs. Yeah, well, he did go unconscious, I think, through sheer laughter. Really? Uh, Hamilton Hammersmith Apollo. Did Great have a show. heart attack? No, God, he's a young fellow. And he sort of just... He was, uh, my opinion, without naming the person... Well, I'll tell you what the doctor who treated him, who's thankfully in the audience, good old doctors and mm-hmm. healthcare workers, he said when he came back... He goes, I think there were some background issues.
1: Oh, so it's high.
0: That's what I interpreted it to yeah. mean as well, Jeremy yeah. <laughs> Background <laughs> issues. <laughs> background being
1: like half an hour prior. That's in the background
0: is <laughs> a man taking some drugs. That's is what I thought. I liked that. Oh, I liked that. <laughs> That's that good language. Yeah. That's because
1: so. they can't tell you because of the oath.
0: Well done. I thought the oaths do no harm. And also
1: confidentiality, isn't
0: it? Do no harm and confidentiality now that's being necessities <laughs> look for the confidentiality um, so uh, also hold on but enough about that what a yeah. great show by me I didn't see it sorry. where were you on the mezzanine floor yeah I was asleep <sighs> how I was long do like, you sleep per night
1: <laughs> eight hours that's
0: disgraceful
1: um, oh, when I got up at half six I woke up
0: what were you doing what did you do
1: I woke up and went. Like, oh I have to get up oh, make a bed when you get two, up put pod- the blanket away two podcasts no because the cat was meowing and she was in this room
0: which around Beetle,
1: yeah. She's like, me, me. I was like, Oh, the cat needs to come out. And then I came down. And she spent she followed me so much, I forgot, I never went back up again.
0: They actually can't get up there, can they? Yeah, the so she
1: every time I moved from room to room, she kept she went into the toilet and she jumped on the back of the toilet.
0: Did you like it having a little bit? I was friend? like,
1: You're really needy. So then I spent ages with Beetle, and then
0: I was like, Oh, work. We got a new cat, it's got no ears.
1: Oh, how does it hear? <laughs> not <a> joke, <laughs>
0: It's good type of cat that's got very little oh, fold over. Small
1: ears, not no ears.
0: Well, like you know when you push no down ear your cat's ears. Jen, Jen, I'm trying to do my work here. You know when you push down a cat's ears yeah. for a bit of fun, or maybe you put a cap in their hat. You know, not yeah. in the Dr. Seuss way, just to see what it would look like. Well, its ears look like that. It's Laura, she loves it because it sleeps in the nook of her neck in her oh. hair. She sees that as a real endorsement.
1: Yeah, it's good. Beetle, it was a bit. She's
0: nice. I love Beetle. Yeah, she she she's wanted my a favorite. lot
1: of head scratches this morning. Huh? She wanted a lot of
0: head scratches. Yeah, she's my favourite. She's yeah. raw. She's wild. I love her. All right, have you done anything in your private life? No. Bought any more black apples? Um, no, bought some
1: trousers. I went for two runs instead of one. I'm not two wearing runs. them. Oh, I bought these too. These are my new leisure wear. Because I have holes in all my running
0: stuff. Do you like what I'm wearing? It's very leopard printy. Do you, do you like to see cross section? No. No, no. Okay. No cross sections. Listen to shout outs, shout outs. Listen to shout outs. Bugatti Royale. I was recommending this podcast. I didn't think I would like it. Well, why, <laughs> why are you laughing at that?
1: I just think it's a funny thing to put in a review.
0: <laughs> I was very wrong. One of the most balanced podcasts I listen to, and believe I listen to a lot. Well, I like this person. Very voyaged being a trucker in the UK. Oh God! All I right, knew mate. you'd like that. This is why, Do you I put
1: know why? this one. It works. I in. love working look... class people, yeah. don't I? I love them.
0: Why? I just love it. I love the rawness of it. I love it. it. You I love the rudeness. Them? Yeah, a bit. But well, I say in a way because look, some
1: of them are just people sitting on the sofa.
0: When I had to be in the working <laughs> class, I wasn't a fan. But now that I've left it...
1: Yeah, you're looking at them like, oh, aren't you? This was great so adorable. over the days.
0: They're not objectifying. Look, it's what it is, is I suppose it makes me realise there's something about it I love. And look, this is not unique to me. D.H. Lawrence was very critical of his family growing up. But then he said he realised watching some workman toiling or whatever. don't well, now he got off in it. So anyway, what I'm saying is I'm the new D.H. Lawrence and I love this trucker. And my wife knows that whenever I see white vans... I know. Working people, i I'm on them. Yeah, I
1: know. Why? Your voice changes. All
0: right, mate. <laughs> yeah, I know.
1: That's why maybe you don't like America, because you can't see. Can't
0: them. do that class stuff. No. Nothing to get there. Although it's pretty obvious there's a, it's a country riven with class divides, which you will learn about next week when you listen to the wonderful Matt Taibbi, My New Crush. One thing you could have done, Jen, is you could have listed all the articles we've used of his, and we could have gone, this is I all did it.
1: ask Gareth what he used. I don't know the articles.
0: Right, Isn't but I it? did
1: consult with our video producer. Oh God, that's a professional job well, <laughs> done. Well, are oh. my questions, okay. Oh no, that's for next week. I asked all of them. I know. Anyway, I was so surprised. Look, let's just enjoy this farmer <laughs> John, guy. John John's great.
0: John Abramson and Abramson. That's a joke from Fiscal Wonder. Love you, Russ. Says Annie Hopkins. Finally agreed to pay for Luminary, and it's a hundred percent worth it. Love the interview of Adam Curtis, first one ever done. <laughs> Could Russ. be one of the others. Oh yeah, have we done him three times? Yeah. I'd love to talk to him again. I love him. Russ has evolved so much since the early Eps. Yeah, I don't talk. Love both versions of him. The jittering and the zen. Jittering. Jittering. (laughs) An early review of my TV career described (laughs) it as a nervous pest of a man.
1: (laughs) I guess it looked like you were jumping out of your clothes a bit.
0: Well, you like me, Jen, because you started my first ever fan site. Yeah. So let's not forget that. But you Jen. weren't
1: wearing the tight clothes at that point.
0: Even then? No, you were wearing and, like, like uh, a little beach You bum. wearing jeans, yeah. What a little freak I was. And you were, so <laughs> you don't get off scot free. Anyway, right, we finished with that trucker, but this geezer loves me, and he loves me for bringing a chuckle and so many glorious guests. We're going to love this guest. We've got John Abramson, he's absolutely bloody terrific. Uh, I'm on tour. If you haven't seen me, you've got to come. You've got to come see me in Plymouth, Bristol, Glasgow, Nottingham. All great places to come see old Russ doing his thing. Go to now. If you've not booked to see me live yet, you must do it now. It's vital. How was it with Apollo last night? Jen, it was like a cathedral. A cathedral. I had to, uh, I mean, I don't know how many times I had to tell him I wasn't the new Jesus.
1: Why were you saying that?
0: Because I think I am And it's the sort of a sort of attention around So they're
1: more like When you say Oh I'm not pretty And they're going No you are pretty pretty. You are the new Jesus Aren't
0: you Yeah probably I don't know (laughs) i make some good jokes about it I do this bit Where I go like um, You know like I say like Sometimes I do things Casey looks a bit like Something Jesus would do And they go Imagine how I feel When I'm getting them photos In the interval And then I think "Yeah, Yeah Jesus Yeah Good old Jesus I love Jesus Yeah so I don't really think I'm him. Do you love him or are you still angry about the Catholic upbringing? I'm not
1: angry. I'm sure he was lovely. Don't care for that <laughs> remark, Jen. And nor will our
0: Christian chums over in America. Uh, mailing list alliance. Get Sign up to the mailing list. We send out loads of good content. You'll get opportunities to do all sorts of things. Pretty soon we're going to start doing the Zooms and all that. There's going to be opportunities to get even deeper embedded in this cult, I mean, uh, movement that we're creating. Isn't there, Jen? Yes. When there's a cult, you'll be up on that misery. No. Yes, you will. Check out the YouTube channel for new videos. You'll love that. Now, get on, let's listen to John Abramson. If you haven't scooted through this bit, here's no. John Abramson. Yes. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a no successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand under the skin thank you so much for joining me John Abramson on under the skin thank you for having me we're very flattered uh, that you've uh, joined us um, and uh, and I've seen you on other podcasts on Joe Rogan's podcast I'm fascinated that you've um, be you? You consult as an expert in litigation against the pharmaceutical industry that you've served as an unpaid consultant to the FBI and the Department of Justice. You've written several books. All of this will go into your intro, by the way. Uh, Sickening how Big Pharma broke the American healthcare system and how we can, or American healthcare and how we can repair it. And you previously wrote a book, Overdosed. America so obviously we're talking about the role of big pharma in uh, contemporary politics in politics over the last 10 15 years the um, the sort of symbiosis between government and big pharma and uh, what do you think are the most sort of relevant observations you can make at, at this time about those the, the 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 relationship between those two institutions of power
2: yeah russell i think the, the biggest observation is that over the past maybe since 1990, there's been a transition in the way that medical knowledge is generated in the United States so that the the generation of the knowledge that doctors trust and the policy, health policy people trust in the United States is coming almost exclusively from commercial sources. And the integrity of that data is not overseen. So it's kind of like the... Uh, pharmaceutical companies can control the data, decide what they're going to study, communicate that to physicians, and create markets that are extraordinarily lucrative.
0: When there's an imperative for profit, it obviously biases outcomes. And given the increasing power, even the power that you've outlined, that the source for most information is the pharmaceutical companies themselves studies that they've paid for disseminated through media organizations that they sponsor where contrary arguments are censored where potential alternatives are not explored we live in something akin to a commercial tyranny now obviously we're in a relatively unique situation in terms of the 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 pandemic but the, much of uh, and the role of pharmaceutical companies in in that pandemic but you're obviously this is a subject you've been in uh, uh, an expert in for like a, for for many years for uh, having been a doctor for 22 years john what do you think is the most uh a pertinent case that you can cite in helping us to understand the impact of, the, of this recent um, saturation of commercial information dominating the sort of narratives around pharmacology and pharmaceuticals and business, what what case can you cite that we can that will help us understand how this is functioning?
2: So I think if we start at the satellite level, the meta level, we can get an idea of how serious this is. In the United States, <clears throat> in the first two years of the COVID pandemic. Uh, approximately 1,200 people, Americans have died every day. And that's a tragedy and it's in the news. And uh, we know that this is the biggest public health uh, crisis that the United States has ever faced. Prior to the pandemic, more than 1,300 people were dying a day in the United States because American health and healthcare is so inferior to the average of the other wealthy nations. So this pandemic of bad health and healthcare in the United States is even more destructive than the pandemic of COVID in the United States. And it's not even covered in the news. People don't know it. It's like like I'm coming up with facts that are from outer space and yet it's in plain sight.
0: How do you arrive at that thirteen hundred? Is that through you know neglect preventable diseases? How do we arrive at that?
2: Yeah, so the source of the number thirteen hundred is the difference between the age adjusted mortality rate in the United States compared to other wealthy nations. And when you do the difference, I think it's one hundred and forty per hundred thousand. When you multiply that times the population of the United States you get to 488,000 excess deaths in the United States.
0: It's very difficult for us to be objective when emotions like fear are involved. A simple anecdotal, or at least um, uh, somewhat allegorical, example is: I am less afraid of being in a car accident than I am of being personally attacked. It's just easier for me to appreciate the, the 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 dangers and the fears of personal assailants. It seems like a more vivid narrative. So, the way that we receive information, the way that we understand stories, is obviously what shapes our reality during this pandemic it seems that there has been an exertion of control over the way that the 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 facts are represented and even what you've said then whilst 1200 americans dying per day is a a tragedy and it's a unfortunate it's unpleasant everything that's necessary should be done to prevent those deaths it's a smaller figure than is already happening so like so what does that suggest the differences and what does that tell us about the way these stories are organized yeah, exactly that's a great question so what it tells us
2: i believe is that the stories that organize our um how we receive that information are so biased by the commercial interests that we just don't hear on the news that more than 1300 americans are die- dying daily that's like um a 9-11 tragedy every two and a half days in the united states because our health and healthcare are so inferior. And about two thirds of that difference ha- is caused by, des- by deaths that are preventable, either by adequate medical therapy or by adequate prevent- prevention therapy. So this is a- an enormous failure of our healthcare system. And yet Americans don't know about it.
0: I suppose the conclusion it leads us towards, John, as you have not indicated, as you have plainly said, is that commercial interests are what dominate the outcomes or what dominate the way that stories are told to us the way that we receive information in fact even the example that we use about like you know a 911 every day which it is a reminder that that those deaths were particularly impactful regarded as tragic epochal and changed the way that policy Operated around the world from wars to freedom of information to data harvesting and capture, it all altered reality. So, we're really, really responsive to stories and the way that we receive reality. So, the pharmaceutical industry undoubtedly has a great deal of power when it comes to uh, curating our perception of reality what can you give us a, a clear um can you give us an example of how we can see that you know like in terms of perhaps litigations that you're aware of or cases you've been involved in
2: uh, oh sure um a uh, a really good example of that is uh the drug nexium was was nexium used in the uk are you familiar with that brand i don't name? i
0: don't recognize the brand name No. uh
2: it, it's esomeprazole uh It's the generic version of Prilosec. And AstraZeneca's biggest selling drug in the late 1990s was Prilosec. They were selling $6 billion a year. It very effectively blocks stomach acid. Uh, Their patent was running out and they needed to come up with an alternative plan. So what they came up with was Prilosec is a combination of the left-handed and right-handed organic molecules. Organic molecules usually occur in mirror images of each other. Um, So Prilosec was a combination of the two mirror images and the drug they came up with to replace Prilosec to try and keep the $6 billion in sales was Nexium which was just one hand of the two molecules. Now, sometimes that's superior, but in this case, it wasn't superior. And the FDA said it wasn't superior. So when the drug company set out to brand Nexium using their marketing skills, because the scientific evidence didn't show it, uh, they set out to brand Nexium as a superior drug, despite the FDA saying it wasn't. They were so successful that Nexium became the third best-selling drug ever in US history. $72 billion worth of Nexium was sold, brand name Nexium, when at that point, Prilosec was available as a generic for an eighth of the cost. So the example, this is one of the many examples in the book, but the point here is that the manufacturer could create this enormous brand value by manipulating the information that doctors had, by marketing the hell out of it on TV and direct to consumer advertising. And they created this $72 billion drug that offered no advantage over the earlier drug that was now, the patent had worn off and it was now available as a generic.
0: It's so interesting because what's pushed to the forefront of our perception is the idea of the objectivity that is concomitant and indeed determines science. This is empirically a better drug. This is empirically the best solution to this problem. This is empirically the course of action we should take. And what is continually masked is the evidently dominant reality that these are financially motivated decisions, or as you said earlier, commercially motivated decisions that sometimes don't just that don't parallel the medical solution but are often at odds with it. So in terms of like uh, solutions, what, partic- what areas in particular are generating these problems? Is it the lobbying industry? Is it the unwillingness for legislators to create obstacles to these kind of practices? Is it the, the fact that FDA, the FDA is significantly funded by the companies that it regulates? What kind of things do you explore in your book when looking for the sorts of changes that we would need to make?
2: Right, it's all of the above, Um, uh, you're spot on. But the key is that the physicians believe that when they read the sources of information that they are taught to trust, they believe that that science is objective and it doesn't matter who pays for it. Two plus two is four, no matter whether a commercial entity or a public entity pays for that calculation. And that is just so far from the truth. The doctors don't understand that the peer-reviewed articles that they're reading in the best medical journals, the peer reviewers don't get to see the data from the studies. The medical journal editors don't get to see the data from the studies. So the manufacturers are sponsoring the vast majority of clinical trials, and they're providing data summaries that are unvetted, though the doctors are told they're vetted, And the doctors are told to practice evidence-based medicine, which means to follow the advice, the conclusions that are reported in peer-reviewed journals. And the doctors don't know that this information is largely controlled by and for commercial purposes. So, if all the things that you mentioned before, the FDA, we don't have health technology in the UK, you have the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, which oversees the integrity of much of the knowledge that your doctors rely on. We don't have those things in the United States, nor do we have price controls in the United States like all the other countries do, so that the value of misrepresenting their drugs in uh, in, uh, hyperbolic marketing the value of the misrepresentation is higher in the United States than elsewhere. So the cost of the brand name drugs is three and a half times higher in the United States than in the other developed countries. Two thirds to three quarters of pharmaceutical company profits come from the United States. And because we don't have health technology assessment to inform physicians about what the most effective and efficient drugs are, the doctors are completely subject to manipulation by the marketing of the drug companies. And that marketing includes withholding studies that might show them that drugs aren't superior. Um, It includes their manipulation and their advertising and their buying reprints of manipulated studies um, and distributing them. So the key here is that the doctors don't understand that they're getting manipulated and science isn't necessarily objective.
0: It's astonishing to hear that Americans in particular are being exploited, treated as a kind of captive market, denied access to medical information that that, that they should be, treatments that ought be available to them. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a, a, a terrifying truth because I always imagine that it's basically everywhere it's the same. We're all subject to the forces of capitalism. We're all dominated by the versions of truth that are most expedient to them. But the, the, but as you, but you I, what you are telling us is the biggest um, factor in creating these conditions is that the information that doctors receive that they believe to be in good faith is pre-tuned and organized to the advantage of the pharmaceutical companies that pay for them. I mean even as a person that knows nothing about this stuff John, I used to I used to sometimes think, well, who's paying for experiments that are not going to be profitable no one's going to pay for them no one's going to say hey this thing's really cheap and it's free and it's effective it cost us hundreds of thousands of pounds to do the research to show that if you do these breathing practices if you get out into the sunlight if you exercise like no one's going to pay for that stuff so it's kind of sort of obvious
2: that's exactly right and nobody's um you could say breathing exercises are on Sort of far out on the spectrum, though I think it's a great idea. But even within conventional medicine, we sell statins, and uh, half of Americans between the age of 40 and 75 are recommended to the guidelines recommend that they be on uh, statin drugs to lower their cholesterol. Statin drugs have been on the market since 1987. That's what 35 years, 34 years. Um, There has never been a study that compared people at risk of heart disease being treated with a statin or being treated with healthy lifestyle intervention. It's never been done. And it's just craziness. And the re- it looks like craziness at first glance, but when you realize, take the um, rose colored glasses off and realize that the purpose of the knowledge creation is to sell drugs that are gonna create the greatest profit for investors it's obvious that that's what they would do
0: wow we're kind of ensnared in a version of reality that is beneficial to the most powerful interests in the world and if you want to receive a different version of reality you have to break out of that because it is possible to 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 appreciate oh well maybe if i don't take statins and i exercise a lot and you know and even the things that you regard as sort of far out and perhaps are like in the respiratory exercise and healthy diet all of those things you you have to make that decision without a sort of scientific support, not because there is a lack of evidence or well, there is a lack of evidence because no one's compiled that evidence because it's not profitable to provide that evidence. And that will be repeated ad infinitum throughout mental health, presumably throughout what's going on right now across the world, because why would the model be any different? in this situation when Pfizer and Moderna openly admit that this is a for-profit enterprise it, like so we can just assume that at what we are being told is a, an objective scientifically underwritten reality is more likely a commercial enterprise that is robustly undergirded by scientific principles where helpful
2: exactly and and the doctors that people trust the doctors who are trying to do the right thing for their patients have been trained to believe that this commercial universe of knowledge is the not only correct but the only source of legitimate knowledge
0: does that training take place because the, the universities and schools where most doctors are trained is similarly funded by the kind of this kind of pharma these pharmaceutical enterprises? Or is it because there's been a significant transition in the last 20 years? As you said, that stuff happened in the 90s. Why is it that they are compliant? Why is it that medical professionals don't understand that they're being given biased information? Why? What?
2: OK, so I think there's two reasons. One is the paradigm of legitimate medical knowledge to practice evidence-based medicine, which means to rely on the results of clinical trials and clinical practice guidelines that are published in respected medical journals, that paradigm makes the doctors captive to the commercial influence because those articles in the journals and the guidelines that are published are, are fed Uh, the the information comes into them from commercial sources that have not been vetted. So when the experts write the guidelines that set the standards for clinical practice, those experts don't get to see the data either. They have to rely on uh, what is um, published, what the drug companies choose to make available. And that's part of the answer. And the other part of the answer is there's a tremendous commercial intrusion into the universities. So many of the uh, respected doctors, professors in the universities have financial ties to drug companies. The universities are dependent on drug company money to do research, but the drug companies control the research now. The the universities don't control the research. So the role models that the students are seeing within the universities are, uh, many of them, are influenced by their relationships with the drug companies. So on both sides, medical students are seeing um, a commercial friendly, an acceptance of the commercial influence on our knowledge base.
0: If you're going to be overtly and explicitly challenging these ideas, it seems to me that you're advocating for an external interventory body to be part of this process, so that there is some objectivity introduced. Which at the moment is unlikely to happen because every single angle you look at it at, it's all sewn up and stitched up in academia and pharmacology, from the FDA to the government agencies. At what point is this intervention going to take place? For one, like you know, what is the nature of this external interventory body? And two. Well, how are you coping down there in Harvard? I'm more of an outsider than an insider, Russell. I, I'm um, I'm a lecturer in the Department of
2: Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School, but I'm not a on a tenure track at Harvard. I'm an adjunct faculty, so that I can do my thing, and I work very hard to be a good teacher. And in health policy, people need to know how the health system works, and how doctors get paid, and how patients access care, and there are nuts and bolts of healthcare policy. And I'm very, I try very hard to teach this my students what they need to know about the basics of healthcare policy. So I've kept kind of quiet. I, I think my colleagues understand my where I'm coming from, though they don't understand the details. And I think the book that's going to be published on February 8th is going to probably change those relationships.
0: Yes, it sounds we'll like see. it. It's going to ruin them. The sickening how big pharma <laughs> broke American healthcare and how we can repair it. That is the title of your new book and it's clear what your attitudes are. Um Okay, thank you. Right, so we've got. Oh, yeah, you didn't answer about the interventionary external. But is that one of the things you're proposing? What are you proposing in terms of a solution? And also, like, you know, and this might lead into see how, um, you know, prior to the election, the Democrat Party, as is always the case, sort of posed as, and I think directly said that they would regulate, for example, drug prices. And then when it comes to crunch time, they don't do that. And you know, and elsewhere in their policy, they seem to not be sufficiently different from any other political party and have no real agenda to help ordinary people how what kind of can you you know as part of you the title of your book coming out soon is how to repair it what would you what would be your proposals both in terms of the um sort of topical medical governance and broader domestic policy that could be you know uh, promoted
2: right so um you're absolutely correct the drug company is very bipartisan in drug companies (laughs) very bipartisan in how they hand out their money and their lobbying efforts to Democrats and Republicans in the United States. And though we have sort of a dialogue about what we might do to contain drug prices, it never quite seems to get done. Um, So we've got a situation in the United States where more than 80% of the people, more than 80% of Americans think drug companies uh, are charging too much and are too interested in profits, more than 80% of the people, and yet it can't get done. So this raises very fundamental questions about what our democracy is about and whether we have a democracy. And I think if, if we're gonna make progress on this, um, what needs to happen is that the constituencies that are affected by this commercial takeover of medical knowledge need to A, get educated, and B, need to get together. So we've got doctors, three parts of the coalition, doctors and other healthcare professionals who nearly 100% of whom want to do the best they can for their patients and want to be of service to their patients and don't understand that they're getting a very limited view of what medical science has to say about how best to promote the health of their patients, to improve the health of their patients. So the doctors need to get together and demand um, access to clinical trial data. And also something you mentioned before, they need 96% of our clinical trials are now about drugs and devices, and about 2% about are about how to prevent disease. So we need to have an epidemiologically balanced research agenda so that the uh, prevention Gets its due, and we don't doctor the, 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 uh, the model of legitimate medical knowledge that doctors have is that it's just about new drugs and devices. And the truth is that about 80% of our health is about how we live our lives. Um, some of us who are less fortunate in a socioeconomic sense don't have as many opportunities as those who uh, are more fortunate, uh, but about 80% of our health is determined by how we live our lives. So the doctors can't do their job. In legal terms, they're called uh, the um, learned intermediaries. So the doctor's legal and moral role is to interpret the best of medical science and apply it to the service of each individual patient. The doctors don't know they can't do that, that they're being played with by because the Commercial sponsors are controlling the data. So, the doctors need to understand that and then become a force to demand transparency of clinical trial data. And that transparency is on two sides of publication. It has to be pre publication so that the peer reviewers and medical journal editors get to see the real data before the articles are published in medical journals, because once the horses are out of the barn, it's hard to capture them. It's hard to capture misinformation back and rein it in. you got to get the information right the first time. So there's pre-publication transparency that's absolutely essential, and then post-publication transparency so independent groups of experts can analyze the data and compare the benefit and the cost-effectiveness of new drugs to older drugs. The doctors need that. They can't practice without it.
0: It's pretty... uh there's a requirement for a radical shift if 80% of health matters are sort of you know behavioral as opposed to pharmaceutical or device led but the markets are 100% or 98% because there's 2% you said, 98% led by device and medicine-oriented research. That means that there's a significant shift required. That doctors need to be sort of awakened, re-educated and told the nature of the information that they're responding to. And it seems astonishing to me that that's l- like a m- much of a task because like, if I were a doctor, you'd already have done me. I'm like, oh, bloody hell, yeah, that makes sense. I understand how that would fit into a capitalist model. That's, right.
2: Uh, let me interrupt for a sec. That's why you're not a
0: doctor. Oh, I see. <laughs> One of yeah, a few reasons, I'm sure. But like, um, but and then on a political level, John, the idea that 80% of Americans, and it sort of obviously makes sense, would prefer price controls on drugs and that, that, that neither of the political parties is offering that is very revealing about the nature of politics and who the democrat party and the republican party really represent whose interests they prioritize when it comes to their uh, assigning policies and legislating policies because otherwise something that would give you 80 percent of you know americans would be incredibly valuable assuming that you know there's in alignment el- elsewhere in the, the, the way that policy is formulated it's astonishing to me that
2: exactly so The first leg of the coalition is the doctors and other healthcare professionals demanding good information. The second is the consumers whose health is determined by what's going on, and they need to become an active coalition, and that's going to include Republicans and Democrats in the United States. That 80% isn't just Democrats. That 80% is made up of Republicans and Democrats. our political dialogue has gotten so polarized in the United States that each side seems more interested in harming the other side than in recreating a commons of healthcare benefit that that commons has been destroyed. And if we could get people to understand, stop the partisanship and let's figure out what we need to improve our health, to have healthy families, to create economic opportunity. The middle is gonna be much bigger than the polarities on either side.
0: This polarization certainly seems advantageous to the interests of the powerful, while most people are preoccupied with differences And points of conflict that ultimately would not advance their interests in the same way as unification might, even with regard to this one issue. A creation of commons, it seems to me, is an idea that could be ubiquitously applied across matters political and cultural to try to engineer a genuinely different America and, in fact, world now knowing what you do about the behavior of pharmaceutical companies in the you know since the 90s since there's been uh, like this change in policy since they've captured the um, sort of uh, the generation of data the presentation of that data the ability to accurately interpret and use that data what do you feel uh would be uh, how do you imagine that they're behaving during this particular and unique crisis based on the available data that you have you know the legislation you've participated in or the sorry the litigation that you've participated in what, what do you imagine might be happening
2: are you asking uh, how does this apply to the covid pandemic
0: yeah actually I, that is what i'm asking uh doctor yes uh-huh.
2: so i i think the covid pandemic is a perfect example of what's going on the drug companies aren't inherently evil their job is simply to maximize their profits And let's just get over, let's stop calling drug companies greedy and let's stop accusing zebras of having stripes. They are, their job is to maximize the amount of money they return to their investors with no limit, as much as possible, no limit, sky's the limit. So the the drug companies are trying to maximize their profits and they exploit each situation. What I got to see in litigation, is every drug is different. There are different populations involved. There are different claims about efficacy. There are different uh, risks and harms that are uh, might be want to be covered up. But it, each situation presents a unique opportunity for exploitation. What we saw with the COVID vaccines, the mRNA vaccines in particular, was that the NIH had done the um, foundational research. They had completed that in 2016 uh, on mRNA vaccines. So the drug companies were ready to adopt, they were poised to be able to adopt this technology and commercialize it. And early on in the pandemic, uh, President Trump, to his credit, started Operation Warp Speed, which just threw a tremendous amount of money at the problem. Uh, If you wanted to, you could say he was giving the money to his buddies, but we were in a crisis and we threw about five times more money at the problem than the EU did in the beginning. And Americans got vaccinated earlier than the EU did. What didn't happen when we were throwing that money at the drug companies to convince them to dive into these vaccines, the United States did not require that the drug companies agree to release their patents and release the technical know-how so that the third world could manufacture their own vaccines. There was no reason for us not to claim that right. We were throwing money around like it you know, grew on, like it was a weed, um, but we didn't make that claim. So what happened? The vaccines came out and thank God they work. They work. The risk of dying right now is 20 times higher in unvaccinated people than in vaccinated people. These vaccines are effective. But because the drug company's job never changed, they had good science, but the drug company's responsibility never changed. Their responsibility is to maximize their profits. They kept their drugs within the first world because they could make more money there. They sold their drugs where they could make more money and they ignored the World Health Organization and the IMF and the World Bank, they ignored their pleas to get the vaccine out to the less developed countries. So what we've got is a great vaccine that is effective in terms of preventing serious illness and death, not 100%, but very effective, but because The third world, the the World Health Organization, said we must get 40% of the underdeveloped world vaccinated by the end of 2021, or we're gonna have a disaster. And because we didn't do that, because 9% of Africa is vaccinated, not 40% right now, we've got these variants that are coming back to bite us in the butt. So it's, it's a perfect example of what's going on elegant medical science. The NIH, it publicly developed, uh, commercialized by drug companies. They're making a fortune. Uh, Pfizer's gonna sell uh, so much vaccine that it's like 70% more than the biggest selling drug before the vaccine. I mean, it's just beyond imagination. And they don't care that by not globalizing the vaccination program, Americans are gonna get hurt. The people they claim they're helping with their fabulous science, they don't care that we're gonna get hurt because these variants are gonna keep coming back from the underdeveloped world.
0: So you see is the most significant problem, their unwillingness to allow people to manufacture vaccines without patents. Uh, elsewhere in policies uh, around coronavirus whether it's uh, lockdowns travel restrictions uh, lack of discourse around early treatment and natural immunity uh, or the ref- again ne- neglecting to test uh, um preventative and early treatment drugs Um, The one thing that could be said to be in common, unless this is just because of my own biases, could be that all of the policies in these areas would advantage the pharmaceutical companies, for example, the unwillingness to acknowledge natural immunity as a, 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 a as as valid you know uh, as vaccination for travel and access to places the ref- the neglect of studying early treatments or you know as elsewhere in medicine as we've already discussed promoting lifestyle and health as a as a component you know so do what do you think of the again the polarization that exists with regard to this issue and what do you think is the role of pharmaceutical companies and their relationships with lawmakers in creating the mistrust and do you think that the mistrust is um legitimate mistrust uh, the between... mistrust the, the mistrust like the many people that are um g- 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 Cynical about the efficacy of the vaccines and the stru- strategies of government uh, around the control of the pandemic, whether it's sort of lockdowns and uh, control around, you know, travel and access to resources. say.
2: So. Yep. So let me take the easier part first. Um, there's a lot to mistrust about the drug companies. They're in an intense search for higher profits. And I think the public understands that, whether it's a general intuitive sense or whether folks uh, have a more granular knowledge of the situation, that there's good reason not to trust the drug companies. And the evidence shows that of the new molecular entity drugs that are approved every year, about 30 new molecular entity drugs are approved by the FDA, 25% of those drugs have been shown to be superior to previously available therapy. And doctors can't tell which 25% it is because they don't have the data. So that's just one example of why there's legitimate skepticism about what the drug companies are putting forth. But it, it, it's kind of like uh, chicken little crying, the sky is falling. There, there are some good drugs. And every once in a while, the sky does fall. There are some good drugs, and this skepticism that is absolutely justified. We've got to be smarter so that we make good use. The drug companies control all of medical science. All of the drugs that are approved by the FDA are controlled by the drug companies. And some of those drugs are going to be good. They're going to uh, suppress HIV infection, and people can live normal lives. They're going to Uh, suppress hepatitis C. Some of those drugs really work. And so we can't be stupid. We got to be smart. We got to be critical thinkers, but not just sloppy critical thinkers and say, oh, they're all just thieves and they're trying to hurt us and they're conspiring to make us sicker so they can sell more drugs. No, we got to be smart about that. And that's really the goal of my book, Sickening, is to help people understand that if they think the drug companies are bad, read this because they don't understand how bad the drug companies are. But that said, we've got to be smart about how we respond in this situation. So I think I think that there probably is some um, manipulation of the media by the drug companies and the drug company governmental interactions that tends to promote the products that um, that uh they'll make money on i am sure that that happens but it's more of a destroying of the commons um so that whether kids should wear masks is a good example and you know people are threatening to shoot school board members who disagree with them and the point is what's best for our kids How are they gonna develop socially? How are they gonna develop their linguistic skills? And how are they gonna stay healthy enough so that school can be open? There are a whole lot of complex questions there. There's no black and white. And if we stopped shouting at each other and said, wait a minute, what's gonna be best for the kids? And what about the teachers that, you know, maybe we could decide that, you know, it's not that serious a disease for kids, Um, 800 kids, under the age of 17 and under, I think, have died from COVID in the first two years. Now, it's a tragedy that 800 kids died, but it's not that many kids. More have died from firearms than from COVID. Um, But the teachers have a legitimate concern. They're at risk. They have comorbidities. And we've got to address their concerns in this whole discussion. So if we would all come into the common space, and say okay state your case what's your what's your primary concern what's your secondary concern let's work this out let's figure out a compromise so that we can do the best for our children instead of shouting at each other and coming to school board meetings and threatening physical harm it's craziness that uh, you know the fabric of our society is coming apart over these issues
0: this good faith has certainly been lost it's clear that all sides of the discourse are dominated by pre-existing political biases and the environment that coronavirus entered into was one that was wrought with political fractionism most obviously trump and anti-trump attitudes but beyond that our as you say sort of pervasive understanding that The drug companies, if you don't want to apply a kind of a moral, ethical or emotional tag to it of like, you know, evil, bad, greedy, are designed to generate profit, an intense search for profit. So, yes, you can see that these are sort of conditions for cynicism. uh, But I guess as well, because there has been an accompanying censorship and a stifling of debate, this too, I think, leads to a kind of... um, in you know, an an atmosphere in which um you know, uh, I would say sort of cynicism thrives people that have been outspoken and doubtful about policy and, you know, all, all areas of policy have been suppressed in a way that feels pretty extreme. Is the opioid crisis the most glaring example of um, mendacity in the pharmaceutical industry? Is it particularly extreme? The um, Is it Sackler family, the Sackler family and the deliberate promotion of dangerously addictive opioids and synthesized opioids is does that stand alone as a, a, a terrible example of, of neg- uh, malfeasance in in the industry or, or is it pretty normal No, it, it does not
2: they oh. happen to have a more dangerous drug huh. but the way they marketed that drug was just routine journeyman bs about convincing doctors to prescribe a more powerful drug that they had been comfortable prescribing before So they tried to convince doctors that this drug is not addictive and it's not abusable and it's so safe that it can be used for routine pain. We used to just use chronic uh, opioids for cancer pain. And in fact, it was Purdue that made a long acting cancer pain drug based on morphine and their patent ran out. And the geniuses there came up with the idea of doing this with oxycodone, making the argument that oxycodone is less potent than morphine, um, so it's less addictive. In fact, it's much more potent than morphine. The whole thing is BS. So <clears throat> they, they are unique only in the mendacity, uh, their mendacity to impose the journeyman branding tactics on a population that was subject to it because of the socioeconomic conditions in the United States. And they found a brilliant market to exploit. So their their exceptionalism is in their marketing, but their the whole project was no more evil. If you take, you could substitute many other drugs for opioids, and you'd see the same kind of marketing uh, excess. the The one thing that they did that I thought was particularly deserves a badge of dishonor, is um, they sold. Uh, OxyContin as a 12-hour pain relief, and they could charge more for it, and the insurance companies paid for it, and they made up this story about you get less peaks and valleys, and when you have more even um, uh, even uh, opioid effect, you, you require less drugs. They knew that it didn't last 12 hours. They had done a study early on, before the drug was ever approved, uh, in... Uh, women in Puerto Rico who had had gynecological surgery. gynecological surgery, And they knew from that study that a third of the people couldn't last eight hours and more than half of them couldn't last 12 hours uh, with the pain relief provided by Oxycontin. They knew that. And what they did is they told the doctors that if your patients are having breakthrough pain before 12 hours, it means they're not on a high enough dose. And what they did is they cranked up the dose to addicted, lo- addictive levels. And that takes a very special kind of person to come up
0: with that. Yeah, that's a pretty unethical model, I, I, but I can see how it's sort of de- derived from, again, the maximization of profit, which is not unique to the pharmaceutical industry, but I suppose what is unique to the pharmaceutical industry and and is um, epitomized in the Hippocratic Oath is the idea that this is an endeavor pursued in, uh, in order to benefit human beings to take care of one another. Is there an argument that pharmacology and medicine ought be exempted entirely from profit-driven models because there is something inherently wrong about using people's pain and suffering to derive profit?
2: I think that argument has integrity. Um, uh, It makes perfect sense. I don't think it's politically feasible, but as a thought experiment, it works very well. I think the more feasible approach is to just acknowledge that when you have an unregulated market, when the integrity of the knowledge is unregulated, and it's very complex, that it will that that the commercialism will exploit and distort the um, recommendations for. Um, optimizing the health of the population that that's just a fact it has to happen if you play that game out a million times it's going to come out the same way a million times so let's just accept that and say that we need some referees here we um do you know the name Milton Friedman the conservative economist so yeah he's he's sort of an icon in the United States and in 1962, he wrote a very radical book called Capitalism and Freedom. And he posited that there's only three legitimate uh, functions of government um, to maintain law and order, to enforce private contracts, and to ensure that markets work. And other than that, government ought to get out of the way and let the market, uh, let people decide by their participation in the market, what their highest quality of life will be. Well, if we, Milton Friedman were resurrected now, we'd see that the pharmaceutical companies are not subject to law and order, to to the dictates of law and order, that they've been fined $38 billion over the last 20 years or so, and that nobody's gone to jail and no drug companies have gone out of business because they've been fined, and that the so-called law and order is a sham and there's slaps on the hand and everyone goes about their business making money. That private contracts, are not enforced because the drug companies own the data, and there's such asymmetry of information that the, the people who are buying the drug or paying for the drug have no idea what they're paying for, and that the market doesn't work. We've got a complex market where most of the drugs are paid for by insurance, and the marketing uh, has a certain uh, effect. Um, so, by if we just brought back Milton Friedman and had government do the three things that he recommended vis-a-vis the pharmaceutical industry, we would get a long way towards um, optimizing the social benefit of um, medicines.
0: When you said earlier that eighty percent of the drugs that are licensed each year are do not improve the you know are not better than the drugs that are already out there, it made me realise you know that just to pursue the argument that I was just introducing because you say like you know it's impossible really to heavily regulate pharmaceutical companies so radically that, that it becomes unrecognisable. I.e., if you you know like imagine if a polit- politician or a political party stands on a platform of we will control the price of uh, uh, of all pharmaceuticals we will ensure that the information that doctors have access to is accurate information that is subject to the principles of science that we all know and love double blind testing transparency openness and furthermore we will ensure that the profit motive is extracted from pharmaceutical endeavor now what you know the counter argument for that of course is that the, the those enterprises would immediately shudder to a halt and i my my counter argument is well 80% of it is already unnecessary so 80% of it we're not losing anything at all now for that remaining 20% we're going to need some people with With some priorities and motivation that goes beyond the futile pursuit of economic gain. And in order to mobilize those people, we're going to need some principles and values that are dormant in cultures that even exist in sort of late Milton Friedman inspired capitalism values such as community. And togetherness, and unity, and service—all you know—I'm not talking about sort of state, you know, communism and a lack of creativity and a lack of individual liberty and freedom. None of those things would, you know, work for me as an individual. But until uh, one of the main parties starts offering legitimate alternatives to this sort of uh, turgid status quo that persecutes and punishes ordinary Americans and people all around the world, then uh, b- b- by virtue of that fact, there w- will be ongoing stasis. But that is we can see, even in the example of the eight. Wanting in control around drug prices isn't what people want, but there's a kind of a, a lethargy that's induced by lack of opportunity. The lethargy that's induced, the apathy that comes from lack of choice, lack of engagement. And I feel that there is room for radical change in this area, just from listening to what you've explained to me in the last hour.
2: Well, I, uh, from your lips to God's ears, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think there's, there's intermediate steps. Um, there's one problem. It's 75%, not 80%, just to be precise. Thank but, you. Um, but there's one. Uh, the issue is that you that you can't know which 25% are going to be superior. So in order to get that 25%, you need a much bigger research enterprise to find out what's going to work. And I'd like to, your solution would work. And if you were uh, the uh, philosopher king, I think, we'd be all set thank you so maybe that's the solution
0: it's good that you're putting it out there but just in case that doesn't happen yet also yeah
2: i want to put in a plug for you Mm -hmm. um but there are intermediate steps so we could have pharmaceutical companies develop drugs and get paid for the development of the drug and then have other companies sell the drugs so that the process of development and generation of the initial uh, information that gets FDA or um, EMA approval uh, would not be corrupted by the future sales of the drug. So you could split up the two functions uh, of the pharmaceutical industry, research and development and marketing. Um, You could also have a, a reasonable amount of profit and you could in a retro way, go back. So make your price, make your price for the vaccines, $25 per vaccine, fine. Turns out it costs you $3 per dose to make it and your profits are going to be enormous after your development costs are uh, uh, recaptured. Um, Then we'll claw back uh, all those doses that you sold for $25 when your costs had gone down to $3 And most people would agree that a 25% profit would be very generous, so you should charge $4.33 or whatever it is, instead of $25. So I think that that way of doing it, I think might be somewhat less draconian than your proposal, but still stop the raping of society just to return the money. What we're really doing is just taking money out of working people's hands and transferring it to the uh, investors. Which It's pretty simple.
0: It seems to be uniformly the function of government to take money from public hands and to place it in the hands of private interests as, uh, as julian assange observed around the afghanistan war if you look at it as a profit making enterprising it was a total success it's only a failure when you look at it as a military exercise or that uh, that's the only time you know and then and, and this can be applied again and again uh, it applies in yes. my country where um, it's not so, you know these problems are not so pronounced or um, elite as in your country you still when you start yes. to apply that um metric that you, you, you understand things a lot more clearly I learned
2: yes and um, just to uh, highlight the difference between the UK and the United States we spend uh, more than twice as much as you do on healthcare per person so we're spending two trillion dollars a year in the United States more than we would spend if we spent what the UK spends two trillion a year Um which is more than, 10 times, more than 10 times more than the Build Back Better plan here in the United States would have cost $2 trillion a year. And for our spending $2 trillion more than the UK does, Americans live four years less in good health than people in the UK. So it's just a disaster. And if People, I hope people listening, if, if they take one thing from this podcast, it's that this is a disaster. It's not working. They're taking the money that we need to help Americans build a good life and address the social determinants of health, and we're not getting health back for it.
0: In a way, it shows what happens if you extract the spiritual dimension from the establishment of systems, political systems. Secularism, You know, like you can argue, the separation of church and state is a wonderful thing in terms of the prevention of sectarianism and the persecution of people that aren't members of a chosen spiritual or religious elect. But in terms of the extraction of these values and, and how they appear in secularism, sort of watered down to generally accepted neoliberal, humanitarian, and so. Soft- passive uh, ins- ins- insipid kind of values that we have that seem mobile enough to accommodate uh, a culture where food companies can sell bad food, health com- health providers and pharmacological companies can sell bad products and can be negligent about their you know, duty of care, where doctors can make decisions based on bad information. So, and, and, and in our country, where we still have a national health service, but not for much longer because of the slowly, incrementally, gradually, it's being passed up and sold off, would you believe, to American health insurance insurance providers as a result of decisions that have been made in the last five, 10 years in order to do what? In order to spend more money for worse results based on the experiment that's running over there in your country.
2: That's exactly right. And, you know, is democracy going to put the brakes on this? Will there be enough people like yourself who try and bring this case, make this case that the interests of the public are not being served and they're not being served by this polarization that's just a smokescreen over the whole issue, by this idea that we're so against the other side and vice versa, that there's no solution possible, that government can't possibly help this. And we forget that in the middle, people want to give, uh, live good lives, they want their families to be healthy, they want to have a job. And why don't we address the middle instead of the outside?
0: Yes, Doctor. Thank you so much for making so plain the principles, ideas and suggestions that are available in your new book. Thank you for being able to so articulately praise the esoteric knowledge and to convey it here in this crucible where the understanding is admittedly limited by our uh, lack of education. Thank you for bridging the cultural gaps between your nation and mine and for demonstrating principles like honesty, integrity, authenticity, uh, the, the brand that are evidently necessary elsewhere, particularly in the areas that we've been discussing. Thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to share these ideas. And it's been a pleasure talking with you, Russell.
0: I've really, really enjoyed it. It's fantastic, John. I hope that we can stay in touch and I'll, I'll let you know when um, this episode's coming out. And I hope that we get to communicate further
2: great it would be my pleasure
0: thank you sir thank you for joining us on this lovely journey with john abramson let me know if you thought of it on instagram tag me at russell brand or tweet me at rusty rockets with a hashtag under the skin remember come and see me go to russellbrand.com to get tickets to see me in newcastle or Hull. Those are two places, Bristol. Go see, there's loads of tickets available. And if you've not learned to meditate yet, go to Above the Noise right now. You've already paid for it. Get it, go and learn to meditate. Have a little meditate. Sign up to my community list at russellbrand.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, have a listen to Bruce Lipton. Why? Um, like healing yourself and stuff. He couldn't be further apart. Like Medicine. Lip-
1: he's a doctor-y
0: thing. Yeah, well, he is a doctor-y thing, Jen. But he's he a- is. It's
1: like, oh, I hate Big Pharma. What's the alternative? Bruce. <laughs>
0: okay. That's a good journey. You're taking on people on a learning journey. Yeah. A learning.
1: And yeah, um, you might like the next one.
0: James Nesta. Why? Because it's similar. What is and James And also, I feel Nester? like he's very... he's the is guy- that a Breathe guy? Yeah. He was fantastic. Yeah, he
1: was great. I just think people should listen to him as well. All right. Well, <laughs> did you fancy him? <laughs> no. What <laughs> guest did you fancy Matt Taby? He probably out of everyone, yeah, probably. I liked him. Because he was kind of humble and intelligent.
0: He's very smart. And he had a
1: drum kit in the back.
0: What about when he just went in passing, you know, in Iraq and then it was that Hurricane Katrina? Do you know he
1: played baseball for Mongolia and Uzbekistan and then got deported? Fucking hell. He was playing for the national team.
0: That doesn't even make sense.
1: Yeah,
0: I know. He played baseball for, for Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan's
1: national team, then criticised the president and then got deported.
0: I don't like Uzbekistan's president. Right, like, get out. Yeah. If you don't like it, go and play baseball somewhere else. Yeah. Go to America. Good luck finding somewhere to play baseball there. They don't have it. No, I think it's really popular. Well, nevertheless. He no. couldn't
1: play for the national team, though. No. That's right. There's no big... national team, is there?
0: Do you want to be a big fish in a small pond? Yeah. Or do you want to. That'd be a smaller, f- <laughs> be, be the same size fish actually, because you don't change just because you move <laughs> ponds. But the pond's enormous now. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks for all listening to Under the Skin.